This week on Living the Call, Deacon Charlie talks with Martin Ford, graphic designer, project manager, and founder of Harbor, an organization that partners with parishes to transform former convent buildings into places where young adults can live, work, and grow in Catholic community. In this episode, Deacon Charlie and Martin discuss Martin's life as a proud San Francisco native of Mexican descent and why he recently moved to Mexico. They talk about his most recent entrepreneurial project and explore the mystery of us being essential to the plan of God and at the same time, not necessary. I started to discover how much pride there was in me. You know, it's so cool. Like God chooses to need us, but he doesn't like actually really need us, you know? He lets us play, you know, it's, that's so cool. So God is such a generous and loving father. He lets us pretend to be adults with him, you know, <laughs> pretend to be gods with him, something like that. We get to participate in this creative process, which is so cool, but he doesn't really, really need us to do that. This is Living the Call. Martin Ford, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Deacon Charlie. It's an honor. (laughs) You got like the ultimate director's name. Has anybody ever told you that? Like a cinematic director name? Like, like Martin Sheen or what do you mean? I don't know. It's because you got, well, you got, (laughs) you you got Scorsese. So Martin Scorsese and you got Ford Coppola, right? So you definitely, there's, there's definitely provenance to the putting together of Martin and Ford. But (laughs) so I was look, I was looking you up by the way, just, you know, cause I look everybody up and, and this is a, a little unorthodox of a show. I should let the listeners know that you and I know each other. And so we've had a bunch of conversations and with some people, you know, you got to kind of move the conversation along, not the case with you, my friend. So I'm sure we're going to have lots to talk about, but so I haven't done the typical, like, you know, scoping and note taking and the different things that I do typically when I'm talking to somebody I don't know or haven't met. And so I was Googling, just, I said, Martin Ford, I go, what, did he work in San Francisco or do you work in San Diego? So I'm like Googling you. And the first entry is Martin Ford, apparently a futurist which I'm sure you've come across this guy before, but uh, he, he's a futurist, AI scientist, and all this other stuff. And then I guess there's actors that are called Martin. But you have this name that it could, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's a name that you can expect at some point. You're like, oh yeah, like Martin Ford. Like it's got like a ring to it. Like, I don't know, director or something. Oh man, thanks. I, I, I really like my name a lot. I, um, I'm named after Martin de Porres. And um but and my actually my dad I'm named after my dad who was named after Martin de Porres and he was named after him before Martin de Porres was actually even canonized. Oh really? And uh, yeah, so I, I think he was canonized in 1962, and I think my dad was born in 55. He was just a blessed back then. Mm. But uh, you know, really, really important Peruvian saint. Absolutely, he's got a great um, story. Not yeah. very well known in the states, as, as it turns out. And a, and a lay person, right? He wasn't ordained. That that's right. He was he was a third order uh, Dominican brother. So uh, he, uh, just a very humble guy, he was invited to be a fully professed brother, but he, uh, he liked taking the lowest place. He's always depicted mm. with the broom because he insisted on sweeping. So not only is there no shame in that, but I'm convinced that when we get to heaven, you know, the first will be last. I think that the people who swept and cleaned and the humblest of the little abuelitas, you're going to need a telescope to see those people. If you're lucky enough to get into heaven, they're going to be like way up there right next to, <laughs> right next to my wife. I always joke with her. I was like, you know, if I get into heaven, it'll be because I'm sticking my foot in the door, you know, like keep it from closing. And I'll have to, I'll have to say that I know her. No, no, no. I know, I know Jessica. And they'll be like, you do? Let me, let me check, you know, let me call up and see. <laughs> That's, that's what I always think. I know the feeling. I know the feeling. I, I'll be down there with you. <laughs> Mar- Martin DePores is really cool too, because um, wasn't he like, uh, so what I, that could be totally wrong, but I thought that he was, um, in his time, he devoted himself to like the, like barbering or, or doing something related to that. Maybe, yeah, like a barber. And it, back in the day, you went to the barber for a bunch of stuff. It wasn't just to get a haircut. It was like, putting leeches Bingo. on things and all that kind of stuff was he was he was in that right that's right he he was um he was a, a mestizo saint his mom was black and his father was a spaniard uh, a soldier i uh, i believe and um and he uh his father left them uh, his his mother and and him when he was just uh i think he was like 5 years old or something like that he was very young and um and he was very precocious cool. so uh, because he was so such a smart kid, you know they uh, they 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 put him on track to become a doctor, um, and at, at at that 
point in time, you know, doctors and barbers were pretty much the same thing. You know, the, the twirly uh, red and white things that they yeah. uh, that they have at barber's office, that's supposed to be blood. Uh, so, um, yeah, no, he was uh, he was uh, a barber. So he took the, these really humbling positions. There's even this story about him. Um uh, you know, he would, he would be cutting his brother's hair and some of them would be asking for like nicer haircuts and stuff. Right. And he would, uh, he, he would, uh, out of humility, he would always, you know, listen to his superiors, even if they'd get really mad at him. Mm. So, uh, no, it's a really, really fascinating saint. I, I had the privilege of visiting him in Peru. Oh, really? What's yeah. his, what's his, uh, is it like a shrine there? Yeah. Yeah. So there's this big, um, see, I was, I think I was, 11 years old. I went mm. my, I, I, I traveled a lot with my dad, uh, cause my dad did a lot of business in Latin America. So he, I tag along with him a lot. So one time he had a trip to, uh, to Lima. So I went with him and his body is, uh, in the same church as Santa Rosa de Lima. And, and they were best friends. They were uh, very, very close friends. And, um, what, what happened was, um, I, I was with my dad and we're looking for, for Martin's, uh, crypt. Um, and I, I we're walking around and we see these signs and they're pointing to it, but we're, we can't f- figure out where the heck it is. Mm. And um, suddenly I, I noticed that a bunch of people were looking straight at me mm-hmm. and I was like, oh, he must be close. And I started looking around and then I looked down, he's buried in the floor and I was walking on his walk- tomb. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's a, sh- that's a yeah. shrine faux pas that you committed. <laughs> That's exactly right. People always ask me, oh, did you keep the shoes? Those are like second degree relics now, right? <laughs> they are. Yeah, that's exactly right. Anything that comes in contact with a first class relic is itself a second or third class. Yeah. Is it, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that too about the the barber pole. I didn't know that about the blood and that makes total sense. Um, but the, the there, there's so much symbolism around things that we now see in kind of secular settings that we don't think about have biblical origins or religious origins. The other one that's very much, I don't know if it's barbershop, but is related to like the medical part of what we were just talking about is, um, you know, like an ambulance, like the, 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 basically the, the brazen serpent, right? It's like, it's right there on like every ambulance. Uh, we had to do some things recently at Cedar Sinai here in LA and their logo is literally the brazen serpent. And And I'm thinking to myself, like what percentage of people who are in here to get like a tonsillectomy know that this logo is like a brass serpent that was a prefiguration of Jesus Christ on the cross? It's like probably very few. Yeah, yeah. It's I no, I, I agree with you. It's uh, and it's it's we, we see it everywhere and we kind of block it out because we see it everywhere. It's it's just like a kind of in your face um, symbol of uh, symbol of our faith. And, and I understand Ooh. that that symbol even goes even before it's a very prehistoric symbol that it's so cool that all these ancient myths are all, they're all pointing to Christ. Uh, I think that's just fascinating. Yeah. And so Martin is Martin de Porres. Ford is that, that's Scandinavian, isn't it? Like a fjord? Isn't that, isn't that one? <laughs> we, we actually have no idea where that name comes from. So it's from the Mexican side of my family. Yeah. And they've been, you know, we had a, my, my, my genealogy was, you know, was always full of surprises. My, I have a, a little brother who's a Dominican friar. Mm. And he's kind of the genealogist of the family. And we had assumed that the Fords must have been some Americans who went to Mexico. And, and, but my brother told me that, that, this, that our lineage of the Fords have been in Mexico for at least 500 years or I something. Bet. like. Well, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit. It's like 400 years. Yeah. And, um, but we don't know where they came from. I mean, I, I've Ireland, England, Wales, not, not really sure, but, um, but some, but through Mexico. <laughs> so, so you're the, you're the second guest, uh, recording from Mexico ever on this show. The other one was, um, Father Jesse Esqueda, who has an incredible, he's the rector of the mission in TJ that is like, um, serves like 5 million people or something insane. I mean, he's like a mother Teresa of like Northern Mexico. But I've never had anybody from uh, Mexico City on the show, so you're the first there, or related parts. I know I know you recently moved. Are you? Are you? Oh wait, you're in Nayarit now, right? I'm in Nayarit now. See, my, I was in Mexico my, City my note for taking. a while. See what I told you? My note taking. <laughs> but um, but so so you well, you're the certainly the first person from Nayarit, um, <laughs> which is one of my favorite foods in the whole world, by the way. You have to tell us about that. But but um, what I was getting at is that, you know. A lot of people, and I'm sure I'd love for you to talk a little bit about this, okay? Because, and you've talked about it just even already in the story of Martin de Porres, who was, you know, who was a multicultural himself. 
But a lot of people would look at you, Martin, and go like, here's a guy from the Midwest, right? You're, 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 you're a white guy. And, you, you know, it's like – and now people who don't know about Mexico and specifically Mexico City maybe don't know how, how common that is, right? There's even like this whole Chilango terminology for like, you know, kind of Mexican city, upper crusty kind of folks. But, but when you have to tell people, it's like, no, uh, you know, I'm Mexican or half Mexican – like, how does that conversation typically go? I'm just curious. And I'm sure it varies, but like, break it down. Sure. Yeah, no, that's really good. So my family is from Guadalajara and uh, it's, there are uh, more people of my complexion there than in most parts of Mexico, especially around Guadalajara, Los, Los Altos de Jaliscos, where mm -hmm. it's called. A lot of European settlers went there. A lot of German, uh, Irish uh, mostly Spaniards, obviously, um, e even some Poles, believe it or not. There's a, there's a history of some Poles in Los Altos. And um, yeah, so I'll, I'll tell you, like what uh, just you asked, you asked what it was like. Just I'll give you an example. I remember I used to work for the airlines. I worked for Virgin America. Mm. Uh, I was I worked at the gate. And um, and I remember people were always just kind of blown away. I'd, I'd, I'd be, you know, talking to helping a customer. And then somebody would come up who only spoke Spanish and I'd be speaking Spanish. My Spanish is not excellent by any stretch of the imagination, but I have a pretty convincing accent and people are just looking at me like, who the heck are you? Yep, you know? Yep. Never, so it's, it's, it's a little bit jarring to see somebody who looks, as you said, like, I, I, I suppose I look like a Midwestern or something like that. Um, but yeah, my, my whole, that whole side of my family is, um, rather mixed. I have, uh, family members who are darker in complexion and, but a lot more who are, or more like me. Yeah. In Spanish, you'd be the sort of huerito, right, side of the equation. I would, <laughs> I would right. be, I would be more that I'm probably the darkest in my family. I'm the trigenito in my, in my side of the family. <laughs> but, um, but this is also like in a way, so you mentioned Jalisco, which is the state in which Guadalajara is. And for those folks who may not know, there's actually states in Mexico, right? There's 32 where we have 50 in this country. And I've been blessed to be able to be to most of them, at least for a visit especially Jalisco. I spent a lot of time in Guadalajara when I was a kid living in Mexico City. It's such a great state. It's a great town. But, you know, um, you brought up this, I, this sort of code switching that you did at the, you know, at the airline terminal. But, you know, there, there's also, it's a mixed bag, right, in terms of, of the way that the sort of bicultural, biculturalism is received depending on where in the world you are. Here in the U.S., it's very trendy right now, right? It's like multicultural, bicultural, tricultural, you know, and, and we've even taken that to degrees that start pointing us in the direction away from the gospel, right? Where we're really separating people and kind of balkanizing people, right? So, so we have a lot of, in this country, understanding of this idea, generally speaking, you know, but in Latin American countries, there, there's more, maybe in my experience, there's vestiges of a lot of things that maybe wouldn't be racist in the sense of our conception of that word, but is sometimes regarded as maybe colorism or classism or some of those Bingo. sort of things. That's it. I, I would say that uh, sometimes when people come to Mexico, especially from the United States and Canada, they, they like to take the categories that work in our, in the, in our countries and the Northern uh, North America, and they think that they apply down South. I'm not saying that there's no racism in Mexico. There's racism everywhere, of course, but, um, but they wouldn't, it, it's not, for, for example, when I go to a, a restaurant or a you know taco stand or whatever, they'll look at me and go, ¿Y tú qué quieres, guarito? You know, it's like, what do you want, white boy? You know, and it's like, and it's like, it's like nothing. It's not, they don't mean any offense. It's sure. not, they don't, it's nothing. It's just, you are a white guy. So that's what we're going to call you. Uh, Mexicans are very blunt in how they, how, how they call people. Fat guy, Ooh. his name is going to be, you know, it's going to be Gordo. Gordo uh, yeah. A skinny guy, it's going to be Flaco. If you have more oriental features, it doesn't matter if you're Chinese or not, your name's going to be Chino. Yep. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, it's uh, th th those, um, those, 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 but, uh, but, but one thing that, that, that's, that, that's a bigger deal in Mexico is, is as, exactly as you said, it's classism. Mm. Um, and, and what they, what they often say, you know, like, people who are a little bit more upper crust, they'll, they'll, they'll ask, does, does he have education? Mm. And that doesn't literally mean education. It, it doesn't mean if they went to school or not, but are, do they have class? And, mm. and they'll use that a lot. And, and it's unfortunate, you know, uh, just, just as racism is, is a, as a misfortune that we have in the United States, classism is a, is a, it's a big issue in Mexico. Did you ever so. see the movie, uh, Roma? Alfonso yeah, Cuarón. the black and white one. Yeah. <laughs> yes. 
Yeah. So that that movie was basically my childhood, a big chunk of it. Wow. Yeah. I um, because I grew up, I spent a number of years in Mexico City, and it was late seventies, early eighties ish, right? That time period. And the idea of having the dad who got in the car and went off to work and came back, and then we had summers in Jalisco and Guadalajara and Valle del Bravo and all these different places, and like the 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 upstairs downstairs kind of dynamic, right? Where you had, um, you know, basically what we would call maids. Although the 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 term maid really doesn't in in the in the Hispanic mind, it, it's not the right context, right? It's it's um, like muchachas del servicio, right? It's like they're part of the family in a way, but they have their own That's space. Right. They have their That's own right. their own kind of space. But even as a kid, I, I really did notice what you just described, the sort of distinction, right? I can even remember my mom saying, you know, things like, uh, you know, not about them specifically, but other people like maleducados, you know, not well-educated. And it didn't mean I didn't study arithmetic. It meant that, like, I wasn't brought up with, like, the right way of decorum and etiquette and, like, all these, like, fineries, right, that we kind of, we, 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 we thought or looked at in a different level. And I, and I grew up with a lot of that, like, frankly, in my background, you know, and, and sort of mm -hmm. like woven in. And it was only when we moved back to the States, frankly, that I started to kind of unpack that a little bit um, and, and, and recognize some of the things that are maybe good about it in the sense that, look, it's good to be cultured. It's good to recognize like there's other parts of the world and people speak different languages and there's other like all that's good. But there's a moment where that becomes a limitation in relationship and where you won't associate with somebody. And we were right on, like as a kid, I definitely feel that we were in that, in that, on that line, right? Of there's people that are, we can associate with and other people that we can't. And it wasn't about danger. It was about like some kind of infection maybe. And so those things are bad. Um, and, and, and a lot of that like is still there, I think, present. Yeah. I, you know, I lived in Mexico when I was, I lived in Chihuahua when I was five and six years old, and I've been to Mexico a lot, but I can only speak from my personal experience, which has mostly been the United States. And, and I, I, my, my grandmother, um, who I was really, really, really close to, um, that was one thing that I don't remember ever having. She, mm, we always had, my, my grandmother was a very, very, very polite woman. She, she didn't swear at all. And she would always kind of cringe whenever she heard her grandchildren using bad words. Uh, she's just a very classy woman. But, um, but I remember even as a kid, she, her door was always open to guests and she mm. had homeless people coming and eating mm. at her dining room table. I mean, her, she didn't have a dining room, her kitchen table. And, uh, and, um, you know, and she, uh, I, I, no one would ever accuse her of being, a, um, of having a, a bone of classism in her, uh, and, and certainly not racism. Um, but yeah, but, but, but now that I'm, you know, I've been in Mexico, you, you, you do see it more. I, in mm. fact, sometimes you see it in parishes, unfortunately, you know, mm. you see some churches that kind of cater to, to wealthier people and you see, you know, the people kind of look alike for the most part, not always, but for the most part, mm. or, and, and then you go to across town to, um, to another parish that that's, a, that's a lot poorer and, um, and it's, and it's, it's different. See, you, you, you mentioned, um, you know, muchacha, somebody to, somebody to clean and how there, there's this idea in, in Mexico ah, when you're, and, and I assume this is in other parts of Latin America too, how in, in the United States, having a maid just seems like an extravagant luxury and uh, a, a housekeeper, I think is the better term to use yeah. a housekeeper. Um, but in Latin America, it's kind of like, this is how we take care of the poor by, by employing them. Mm. So sometimes you'll have families that they'll have somebody for each of their kids, even, you know, nothing I ever experienced, but, but that'll be, and, and, and it's, and, and it's expected, like if they have like a big medical emergency, you're going to, the, the person who's employing these, these housekeepers is going to be paying for it. Cause as you said, they're, it, it's not just that they're employees, but they're, they're kind of, they're under your stewardship in a sense. Yeah. I, I don't know if that makes sense. No, it definitely does for me. I think it's something foreign to a lot of people who might be listening to this show. And, you know, frankly, to American culture. I think the idea of a, a, even a housekeeper, right, it is a better term than maid, but it's also singular. Like you wouldn't have multiple housekeepers, right, unless you're right. like just loaded and have a butler or something. But 
But the idea of having multiple housekeepers is far more common or maybe dedicated to dis- different disciplines, right? You might have somebody who right. lives lives in the property that does the cooking, maybe cares for the kids, maybe takes care of the property, like some of that stuff. Even, um, you know, it, uh, my family's from Colombia and some of my uncles have fincas, right? Which probably the nearest translation would be ranches um, that they go f- on the weekends and do different things uh, in and they will have in Spanish, a mayordomo, right? A, a, a butler, effectively, that sort of looks after the property. But to say that they're an employee and that it can just get swapped out with a new guy next week is like, would be, uh, you know, scandalous to, to my face. Right. Like, what are you talking about? It's like, I've known this kid. I've known him since he was three years old. Like, you know what I mean? It's He's the guy who, he's lived here his entire life. So it's this, it's a very different concept and it straddles this line between the kind of transactional nature of employee and the and the familial aspect of a family member, it's not either, really, but it's sort of in there in between, and it's really interesting. And the reason I mentioned uh, Roma is because that movie by uh, Alfonso Cuaron, that movie really kind of captured some of that upstairs-downstairs dynamic that we see in British stuff a lot, but it, does, but it, did it, but it also captured the familial piece of it, which is like, you know, you're like, they sat for a family meeting and like, you know, she, the, 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 the housekeeper was in the meeting, you know, like, we're going to talk about this. We may be moving. You may need to come with me. Is it okay with your family? Like you would never do that with a maid here or somebody who cleans your house. You wouldn't say like, I'm moving. Are you okay coming to Denver? Like you, you wouldn't say that. You know what I mean? There, there are two, uh, cause you're bringing up movies. Like there are two, um, well, one's a, one's a show, one's a movie that I always bring up as an example. One of them is the, um, is a show, uh, the Brady Bunch. Sure. Um, I, I remember the, the, the housekeeper in that movie and that show is kind of part of the family. It's like, it's kind of like that. It's kind of like that. You know, it's like, you can't imagine the Brady Bunch without, I don't remember her name. Alice. But Alice, that's her name. That's her yeah. name. Um, the other one, the other movie that comes to mind, it's one of my favorite movies is um, Babette's Feast. And mm, I've they, heard um, of it, but never seen it. Oh, you got to see it. It's the best movie ever made. Yeah. <laughs> but they, uh, but, but you know, the, the premise of the, uh, well, uh, basically this, this French woman is exiled from France and she lives with these, uh, with this Dutch family. Uh, I think they were Dutch. I'm not sure. And, um, and, uh, and you know, there she's, well, you know, she, in exchange for shelter, she, you know, she cooks and she cleans for them, but it's not exactly that she's just like an employee. It, mm. It's, it's okay. Good nine to five, goodbye. But she was like part of the family and she would cook alongside with everyone else, you know? So it's, um, uh, it's, 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 I, I never thought I'd be having a discussion about this. This is well, really, yeah, you know. it's, it's, it's a very unique thing. <laughs> yeah, it is. And, and you're a really unique guy and you've got a lot of, uh, really interesting things. I mean, in a lot of ways we have similar backgrounds, right? The whole idea of going with your pops to visit a lot of countries. I mean, that me, I did that you know, both live in Mexico. That's me, you know, uh, a pension for things diverse and multicultural. That's me. You've got, and you've got the, a little bit of that wanderlust too, um, which I think is important, right. To, to like get you to want to experience and visit and see other parts of the world because the world's big, man. I mean, it's, you know, I know we're super globalized and now I can see everything on my phone and whatever, but there's nothing that replaces being in a place and really getting steeped in that. Right. So, um, so I, I'm not surprised we're talking about all these things. Now, for those who don't know you, though, Martin, I mean, you're mm. a guy who, you know, uh, obviously lived and worked in the States inside of church circles, outside of church circles. You've got had secular work. You've had diocesan work. You're actually an entrepreneur. You're, you're, you're kind of like a left brain, right brain guy, which I always love talking to people like that. Um, How did you end up in Mexico again now? Oh, boy. How did I end up in Mexico? Um. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll tell you. It's um, basically, I I I was getting really burned out. I, I started a nonprofit organization in San Francisco, and I was working for the di- the archdiocese. And um, I I I confess that I I was at sometimes maybe most of the time was kind of the missing the whole point of the faith, and I got kind of mm. caught in the in the work component. I was I was a real hustler. And, um, and I knew, I knew that there was something not right. I, I noticed that, you know, one of the things about being very, uh, goal driven is that sometimes you'll, you'll break a few eggs to make an omelet, which is not a good thing to do. 
Um, I, uh, and I, and I, I broke a lot of eggs and I regret that. And, um, and all, you know, all for the church, you know, so I was like, ah, that's not right. And this was eating at me. Um, mm. not to say that I didn't do a lot of good work. I, I really, I, I think I did, but, um, you know, it's, you know, I, I, but I, I would hate to do that at the expense of my own soul and even worse, the, the souls of other people, you know? And, um, what happened was I went on a pilgrimage with my little brother. Uh, my little brother, Sean is, I, I, 20 years old, 21, something like that. And, um, and I went with, uh, some of my best friends, um, Nacho and Eddie and Josh, and we, we, we made a pilgrimage to visit our lady Guadalupe in Mexico. This was, I think it was the last year, something like that. And, um, and you know, I, I, we went to the Basilica every single day and, you know, I was, I, and I brought this to our lady. I said, you know, your mother, I, I need some, uh, I need some, I need you to send to pray that I receive the Holy spirit because this is not only not sustainable, but I don't know if I can get to heaven this way, you know? Mm. And, um, and, um, I wasn't, I didn't receive any consolations or anything while I was there. I had a great time. Oh man, it was such a terrific time. And, uh, um, just being with, you know, being with my friends and exploring Mexico city. And I hadn't been to Mexico city since I was a little kid. I hated going to Mexico City when I was a kid because I associated it with getting sick. But the pollution has gotten uh, is, has come down a lot in Mexico City. So the air is a little bit cleaner than it was when I was a kid. Mm. So it was, it was a great time. And when I got back to San Francisco, um, I went to bed. I woke up, and you know how like when you sleep, uh, sometimes you're like sleeping so deeply. You know, you I don't want to get too graphic here, but you got like spit under your mouth, like you're oh, like totally. sleeping in your drool. Yeah. I just did <laughs> and, that this uh, morning. So, so it's not graphic at all. <laughs> so I, so I, uh, so I, I, I had that sensation I, and I, and I, I wasn't feeling good. So I flipped around and I was like, another pool showed up and I was like, what's, what's going on here? And I, and I felt my face and I was like, oh, I recognize this viscosity. This isn't spit. This is blood. Mm. And then I, I was aware that I was actually on the floor of my kitchen and I, I, I guess what happened is I fainted. I, I don't know. I must have been sleepwalking. I'm not sure what happened. I don't know how I got there. Oh wow! But I, I, uh, I was, I was lying in a pool. I had like a halo of bl- red blood around my head, wow. and uh, I was, I was slipping and sliding in my own blood. And I, and I was like, oh gosh, oh this stinks. It's like it, it wasn't so much because it, 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 I didn't. It didn't hurt until I knew what happened. It, I couldn't really. It was just more of like a, a slight annoyance. But like then all of a sudden everything started to hurt. I looked in the mirror and it looked like a scene from Saw or something. It was just wow. disgusting. Had that kind of thing and, happened uh, before? No, never. I've never fainted in my life. Um, and um, and you know, of course, I. Well, anyway, I. I yeah, never. I never. Never happened before. I. I. It was. It was a weird thing, and I didn't mm. know what to. I was like, oh, I, I knew. It was like I must have fainted or something. Maybe went to the bathroom. I don't know what happened. And, um, and I, I was so tired and I was, I just wanted to go back to bed. So I texted my little brother who's, I didn't, my, my sister, I have my sisters, some of them are nurses and some of them are, 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 are uh, studying to be nurses. So I didn't text them because I knew they'd say, go to the emergency room right now. So I texted my Dominican brother. I said, Hey, Brendan or brother Elias, uh, text me in, uh, uh, uh text me in like, two hours just just in case I died or something you know and uh and he he responds thumbs up (laughs) um and um he and uh and uh I I woke up and you know splitting headache and uh I went to I went to the emergency room and you know I had a, a minor concussion I broke my nose and and um and then I don't know. It's, 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 it's kind of a cliche story, but something literally hit me. I was like, I'm not going in the right direction. This is yeah. not a good direction for me. Yeah. And, and uh, there was a bit of an emergency at, at work that took place. It's all happening at the same time. I'm like, no, this isn't working for me. So, um, I, um, yeah. So anyway, that, that's when I was like, you know what? I want to go back to Mexico. I, uh, I, uh, not just because it was a great time, but I, that, that certainly was part of it. But I, 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 I it was so wonderful to, just um, to, to, to just to be immersed as an adult, yeah. uh, as opposed to, you know, when I was younger as an adult to really appreciate my heritage. Um, that, that was one thing, but also I, I just wanted to kind of, I, I had just read um, uh, Peeper's uh, Leisure, the Basis of Culture. Hmm. And, and, and basically I was like, wow, I am, I am too busy to even hear the voice of God. 
This yeah. has to change. I don't care how it happens, but it has to change. This isn't working. So that's how I ended up going to Mexico. <laughs> it sounds like, I mean, that's a heck of a story. I mean, we have these moments of inflection um, and yours was oftentimes those moments of inflections have nothing to do with the physical realm. In your case, it, ha it had physical and spiritual uh, components to it. But, you know, the thing that I think about too is that sometimes uh, in the spiritual life, we have a sense of something is off, something is wrong. And even in our diagnosing of what that could be, we hit on the byproducts of the thing. So, for example, right, you mentioned something at the top of the story, which was that you didn't want to imperil your soul or even worse, the soul of others, right? And that to me seems like a, such a bigger principle of the ends not justifying the means, even in the church, right? Even when the object of our busyness is the gospel, that seems to me like such a higher order principle than the fact that you're really busy, stressed, tired, don't sleep, got so much work on your plate. Because all of those things may continue to be the case later on in life. But like, so I wonder if the Holy Spirit, because he's done it to me, is trying to orient the sort of large to the larger thing, right? The larger lesson, which is, you know, the, that the ends don't justify the means even in the church and, and, and not so much necessarily the busy, the busyness part of it. You know what I mean? Because that's an easy thing to diagnose and an easy thing to want to fix. It's like, Oh, I'm not, I just not going to do anything. I'm just going to go off and, <laughs> you know, be on silent retreat for my whole life. You know what I mean? But right. that's also not in, in practical or real in a lot of cases, right? Unless you're maybe a contemplative monk or something. Um, so it's, it's, it, it, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's fascinating how, you know, how those kind of things hit, you know, at least that's what I, that's what I took from what you shared. Yeah. I, well, I mean, for me, I, I, I started to discover how much pride there was in me as if though, mm. you know, it, it's so cool. Like God chooses to need us, but he doesn't like actually really need us, you know, right, I know. Uh, yeah. he's, he, he lets us play, you know, that's, that's so cool. So God is such a, generous and loving father. He lets us play, pretend to be adults with him, you know, <laughs> pretend to be gods with him, something like that. We get to participate in this creative process, which is so cool, but he doesn't really, really need us to do that. Mm. Um, and, um, and, uh, I don't, I don't know. It was just, that's, it, it's kind of humiliating a little bit because, you know, you know, you think, oh, I've got so much to contribute to the world. I've got all these great ideas. Oh, my ideas are just the best. They're going to save everybody. It's like, oh, it's, it's a wafer thin line between, um, you know, wanting to serve God and ideology, you know, it's mm. like, oh, it's right there. <laughs> it's crazy because as humans, you know, that's the thing is we have to wrestle with the fact that we are essential, but we're not necessary. Ah, right? I like that. It, 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 because God has a plan. And if you don't play your role in it, then his kind of salvific plan can't unfold. But he doesn't need you in that sense. He needs nothing, right? So it's kind of wrestling with that weird straddling of both of those fences because we have a really essential thing to do out in the world, every one of us uniquely, but God is all powerful. I give, um, I don't know what you make of this, but sometimes I've had this with, you know, instruction that I've given altar servers and people in general about the Eucharist, right? Because Sometimes the you know there's some profanation that happens to the Eucharist on accident. Ninety nine times out of a hundred, somebody drops a host, somebody spills a chalice. You know that kind of stuff happens. And the instruction that I that I that I try to give is like it is so right and noble and beautiful to take great care to ensure that when that happens, you do things with love and tenderness, and there's a way to do it. Mm. You know to pick up the host to consume the host. To, pur to, uh, to purify the space where the precious blood has spilled. Like there's a beautiful part of that. But then at the same time, you got to remember what we're dealing with and that's a person and it's God. So God can take care of himself, right? So like there's this, there's this moment where you can go too far in this like, you know, kind of direction where it becomes a, a form of, of scrupulosity in a way that's dangerous, yeah. right? And then on the other side, you could just go, ah, whatever. You know, it's like, that's not right either. That, so it's like just that finding that balance is really key. Amen. I, you know, I, I, I want to be careful how I say this because I don't want to give the impression that I have any prejudice, but I, I used to hang around a lot more uh, Latin mass people. And let me just say for the record, I, I love Latin mass. It's beautiful. And I, a lot of really lovely Latin mass people out there too. 
uh, but I noticed that sometimes there was like this, there, 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 I noticed this tendency where, you know, it's like, eh, you're, you're spending a little too long cleaning the chalice, you know, it's, um, uh, you know, it's like, I, yeah. you know, it's like, it, that's important. And, and I, and actually I, I, I met this, um, this hermit at a retreat house who was really, it, it was a Latin mass hermit, um, He's a Latin mass hermit. That's what he was. Interesting. And, um, and he uh, was a very, very, one of the kindest people I ever met. And I, and I, I had a bad experience with Latin mass but before for a little bit. So I was a little, little agitated by a lot of Latin mass stuff. But I met this hermit and um, he, he explained, he, I, I, he, he took very great, beautiful care to like clean the chalice and, and, and he took, make sure all the fragments were taken care of. But he said, he, he, he played something on me that was that this is, this is, this is an act of love. The reason I treat the Eucharist with such respect is not because I'm scared that, you know, a little piece is going to fall off and that, you know, God's going to get really angry at me or something. It's like, no, 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 no. It's not like that at all. It's like, I am in love with this God man that's on the altar. You know, I'm in love with him. And, and I want to, I want to treat him with just, just as well as, um, as, um, as a good, as a good husband would treat his wife or, or, or vice versa. You know, one thing I was, I was also thinking about now that you mentioned it, um, I, I have, I have pretty much my whole life, I've always received communion on the tongue because mm. my, you know, my, my dad always told us to do that. And, um, and, and I, and I prefer doing that. I'm, I'm uncomfortable receiving on the hand. I'm not against it. I'm just, I just don't like to do it. And, and I, and I, I often hear in the United States, people talking about, you know, they're horrified by receiving on the hand. They go, mm. how dare you touch the holy of holies? And I, and I think about how I receive in Mexico. It, it's not that I'm not touching the host because it's so holy. I'm touching it. Be, I'm, I'm receiving on the tongue because having somebody put something in your mouth is just, it's a very intimate experience. And it's like, that's the kind of intimacy I want with Jesus. Amen. Uh, I don't want, I don't want to shake Jesus's hand. I, I want, I, I, you know, it's like, I want to kiss Jesus. Yeah. Kiss um, him. It's an embrace. It is. Right, it, it's right, also, right. It, it also is a sign of um, docility and vulnerability and humility. And so Amen. all of those things can be good. But to your point, for those people who say that the host is somehow desecrated by, by receiving in the hand, that is exactly who I think the instruction of God can take care of himself is important for them to hear that, right? Even in cases where, and look, God forbid, but let's say somebody dropped a host and nobody saw it. Mm. And then as the line progresses, somebody accidentally steps on the host. Now, do we really think that God is wounded by that if it's done accidentally, if it's done without any understanding of what's happening? Or it, would he be more offended by somebody receiving on the tongue, but not believing or receiving mm. on the tongue and walking out into the parking lot and cursing the guy who's in the, in the car in front of him. Like we Amen. have to really be, you know, God is God. Okay. And, and so like it's, it's when we get really wound up around the kind of me mechanics of, of things, we're losing sight on the bigger picture. And I think we can have both. I mean, frankly, that's the whole faith. The whole faith is both. And you got to do it that way. And it's Amen. hard, it, it, you know, it's like balancing. It takes effort. If you don't, if you're not trying to balance, you're going to fall. And so it, the moment you find yourself, whether it's, it's repetitively being super observant, scrupulous about something, or so lackadaisical, you don't even know what's happening, you're off balance. That's what it is in my, in my view. And, and look, I know that this kind of stuff is ripe for a lot of, of controversy with folks. Um, and I understand it, but I think it's important to be challenged in that way because that's what our faith actually is. Amen. Amen. I, uh, when I, uh, just one, one other story related to communion, um, in the mouth versus hand, I, I, uh, I was really good friends when I was in the airlines with this, um, uh, a very devout Hindu hmm. and, uh, his, uh, his, his wife, the old school Indians, like, uh, they, they had, they arranged marriage and everything. Yep. And, uh, his wife really liked me a lot. So she would pack a lunch, give it to her husband to bring to me and, and, uh, and to Cor and I would eat together. And we would talk about, you know, he would tell me about Hinduism and I would tell him about my faith in Jesus. And uh, we had really beautiful conversations. But uh, I went to their house one time and I was really struck by this old couple. I, mean, I don't know, they're in their 60s or something like that. Not, not that old, but older than, older than I was, certainly. 
And um, I was so moved that even at that age, she would take food and put it into his mouth mm. and he would feed her. It was mm. like the most romantic thing I've ever seen, you know? For and sure. I was like, that is what receiving on the tongue is for me. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's about the heart, you know? <laughs> for sure. Intimacy. There's a, there's, mm. I'm going to forget the word, but in the Ethiopian culture, um, there's a word for that because in Ethiopia, they, um, they, you know, by and large, the, the custom, the tradition is for food to be eaten with the hand, right? So not, mm. not utensils. They use this bread called injera and they use it as a little like device almost to pick up the food. But then the first bite, the first morsel, and there's a word for this and, and anybody Ethiopian is going to be upset because I don't remember what it is, but there's a word when that first morsel gets given from the person who scoops it to the mouth of another. And it's like, wow. You know what I mean? It's like wow. so powerful. And when you think about how transactional we as Americans are about food, it's like, not, mm. only do we do, not only do we not do that, but everything is like individually portioned and wrapped in cellophane and like, you know, designed in a way where it's oriented to us. And, you know, it's, it's so individual. And so that's, that's like part of the beauty about like knowing other cultures and experiencing like you are is, is that you come across these things and they can teach you something. Absolutely. You know, there's something so primordial about, about food and, oh my gosh, how cool that God chose food as the vehicle for us to receive them. I mean, that's, that just blows my mind. Um, I, I remember uh, when, uh, this is another story, when I was uh, working in the airlines before Virgin America, when I was with United, I remember the lunchroom, um, you, you would see faint echoes of this, of this. you know, I, I noticed that um, the Filipinos and the Mexicans and the Tongans and the Samoans would, would always eat together. Um, and, and I, and, um, and, you know, they would share their food in exchange. It was like, food is not just the, it's not just the thing so that I can get calories, so I can go out there and work again. But it was like, mm. no, it's also food for the soul. It's to, to encourage each other's, uh, to, to be with each other. And, and sometimes, uh, you know, those of us who were born in the United States, you know, uh, the more American people, you know, they would eat by themselves and it was just very sad. But I would notice a lot, you know, the Tongans would, the Tongans are the coolest people to work with. I tell you, they were, they were, they were so much fun, uh, but they were always like inviting people. They were always invited. It's like, why are you eating alone? Come with us. And they, yeah, and, uh, they would all commune together. Um, so yeah, you're right. That is, that's, that's something that we have in the, uh, it's something that's not so great that we have in the United States. This whole, just looking at food is just raw calories. You know, it's like, no, it's, it's pointing to something greater, you know? Yeah. It's giving, it's, it's just something to keep us alive. I just found the word it's Gersha, G-U-R-S-H-A, the act of friendship and showing love for the person you're dining with. You prepare a bite with injera, that's the bread, and feed the other person. Some Ethiopian customers, once their food has arrived at table, give gersha to the server. How about oh, that? Oh, right. How cool is that? Oh, I need Super I need to look cool. that up. Have, have you ever heard of a uh, Ethiopian uh, coffee ceremonies? Uh, I, the ceremony, I'm I'm not an expert in, but I've had Ethiopian coffee and it's phenomenal. But what what's the ceremony? So there is this ancient Christian tradition in Ethiopia and Eritrea where, um, and I've never been to one. So if you have any listeners here, Ethiopian, please correct, uh, please forgive me if I say something wrong. But my understanding is that it's a welcoming ceremony. Mm. And what they do is they roast the coffee right in front of you over this pit of sand. It's kind of like Turkish coffee, I think. Yeah. And, but there, it's not just that they serve you coffee, but there's a whole ritual. Like you pour the coffee three times in honor of the Trinity mm. and, and you serve it. And I, I, I have um, a lot of Orthodox Christian friends and they tell me that they've been to these, you know, they, they've experienced these uh, Ethiopian coffee ceremonies and they've been moved to tears. Mm. So it's like, wow, that makes me want to, to, to attend one. But um, yeah, it's, but, but the whole point is hospitality, but it's, it's so um, influenced by, by our Christian, by our Christianity, which I think is really cool. Something you said a moment ago too is really interesting, right? That all these things point us to God. I I, I try I try hard not to uh, not to date the show by adding a lot of topical references in an episode, but I'm going to break my own rule here and l let our listeners know that we're actually recording this on May first, uh, the feast of uh, Saint Joseph the Worker, and yesterday was Good Shepherd Sunday, mm. and um, I preached yesterday, and in my homily. You know, obviously shepherds are very prominent on Good Shepherd Sunday. So I talked a little bit about the historical 
you know, aspects of um, sheepfolds and shepherds and, uh, you know, all the things, all the trappings, the shepherd's crook and all the things that are involved with, um, with shepherding. And one thing that struck me, because I always try to leave about 40, 45% open for the Holy Spirit. I'm, wi- I'm working myself up to 100%. Okay. When I get older, it'll be 100% to the Holy Spirit. Um, but my faith has to grow, right? So, so I, I, I don't map out everything I'm going to say in a homily. I just don't. So, Beautiful. and one of the things that, that, the, that the Holy Spirit dropped, you know, literally in real time into my head was the idea that all of the symbolism of the shepherd, the sheepfold, the gate, the gatekeeper, all of this is super interesting just from a symbolic perspective of what it can signify. But the thought that hit me was it didn't have to be that way. God Mm. made it so that the symbols pointed to him. In other words, what I said to the congregation was he didn't have to have sheep. He didn't have to have shepherds. He didn't even have to have the idea that one thing leads many. It could have been many things lead one. All of those modalities, all of it is like he willed so that it would point us to him, right? So Mm. it was this moment of like, yeah, Jesus used symbols from his everyday life, but no, no, he made the symbols so that the symbols had that sort of significance, just like with food, right? Food nourishes us right? Great. Did it have to be that way? No, food could have been poison. He could have made humans to, to, to feel that way. Or even sleep. Think about sleep, Martin. It's like we have a little death every day. We literally mm. go to bed and then we have a resurrection every morning. We wake up. Like, why would we have to have sleep? You think God couldn't have made creatures that were just up 24-7? He could have. But like the idea of sleep and waking is, is a symbol of death and resurrection. Everything in creation is pointing to him. Everything is, right? And it's like, Amen. we forget that. Well, even, even more than food not being poisonous, but how cool that food in most countries or many countries so happens to also be delicious, you know? Exactly. Uh, it exactly. didn't have to be delicious. We could, nope. we could be eating, uh, remember the Matrix? Um, oh, I, yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. The scene from the, with the steak? The, the scene with the steak. Which one was that? The, with the steak, as he's cutting oh, the steak. Oh, and, oh right, 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 yeah. right. That's right. Yeah. But yeah, so contrast the one with the steak, but also the, the, the there was an earlier scene. I think it was earlier. Oh, with the where, gruel. Where there, the gruel, yeah. exactly. He goes, if if you squint your eyes, it kind of tastes like runny eggs. That's what he says. And it's like, that was like this, this the, um, the, the, what food tasted like outside of the matrix. Everything was just mm. very bland, kind of a cold universe. And uh, it had all the it had all the all the uh, amino acids that you need to survive. It is a very utilitarian approach to food, but no, especially Catholic countries usually have awesome food. You know, we've got paella, we've got oh, don't get me started on Mexico and you know mm. and Italian food and all this stuff. These are cultures that celebrate you know food. It's food is not just about calories. It's about it's about this is all pointing to the wedding of the lamb, you know? <laughs> well, and you know, it's got to taste good and it's supposed to taste good. Otherwise fasting wouldn't be so important to do. It's like, <laughs> right. if, you ha- if you have to give up gruel for a couple of days, it's like, hallelujah. But if you have to, if you have to give up some, uh, you know, a little ceviche from Nayarit, it's like, well, that's actually a, you know, that's a challenge. That's, that's like something that's worth doing for God. Oh Yeah. Oh, it's very difficult. <laughs> I've nope. definitely been putting on the pounds down here. I should, I need another Lent. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You don't, you don't, you don't look it. So, you, uh, you know, um, one other thing that I wanted to just get some thoughts on from you um, was how, you know, around the circumstances that kind of led to how we met, right? So you and I met when you were starting an initiative um, called Harbor. And mm. the idea of Harbor was really fascinating to me. Um, as an opportunity, I'll let, I'll let you sort of describe it, but you had this sort of entrepreneurial, you know, kind of zeal. And I, I thought that was really cool. And, you know, there's, there's, I, I'm curious about a couple things, not just the facts around sort of what Harbor is, but the way that you view, maybe especially now living abroad, the way that you view entrepreneurialism and what that, what that is from a spiritual perspective. Sure. Well, um, I'm I'm still working that part out because right now I'm I'm uh, <laughs> I, I I I you know you know it's like the 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 virtue is always to be found in the middle and I think I I went too far in one direction and I, I might be going too far in another mm. direction right now you know um, mm. but 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 you know but I but I can't say a few things like you know I I think it's really really it's a blessing this goes with the conversation we just had 
to be able to participate in the works of the Holy Spirit. You know, like God, God gave me the privilege of being able to establish this, uh, this community that's called Harbor in San Francisco. Um, he didn't, strictly speaking, he didn't need me to do it. God could have just said, bam, there's Harbor, or he could have gotten somebody else. But, you know, God, you know, billions of years ago, trillions of years before the beginning of time was like, I am, I, I want Martin to participate in this project. I'm going to give him that privilege, you know, which is, which is, which is really, really cool. I think that's something that all entrepreneurs should think about. You know, it's, it's, it's not just that sometimes we can think it's like, oh, I've got this great idea. This is my idea. And I'm going to, you know, you know, put it out there, but no, it's like, we actually have this privilege to be able to participate in, in, um, in something that God gave us even before we were, we were made when he was knitting us in our wombs, you know? Mm. Um, so, so, uh, yeah, there's, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's what I want to say about entrepreneurs. <laughs> I was, um, I'm further dating the episode by saying that I preached today as well on May 1st, um, the feast of, uh, St. Joseph. St. Joseph. Yeah, very, very important, uh, you know, man in the constellation of saints, the 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 pater familias of the holy family, right? It's it's funny because we say the foster father of Jesus, but we never say the foster father of God because that's what he was. It was the oh, foster father of God. Interesting. Right? Um, for the same reasons that Mary's the mother of God, he was the foster father of God. But yeah. um, but I was I was thinking about, you know, what you just said um, and preached about it, in fact, about this notion that— from the beginning of time that, that God deigned at some, you know, moment that is not really a moment, um, but just from eternity that, you know, we would, and this is what I said to the congregation, we would be sitting here, you would be sitting there and I'd be standing here, right? Like there is, nothing is coincidental. Nothing is accidental, right? God allows a lot of things that may not be in accord with his perfect will, but nevertheless, even in his permissive will, he's aware of everything and all of it's happening for a reason. And, and so this idea sometimes that we can get in the business life or whatever it is, the entrepreneurial life of like, you know, well, you know, I, I guess I could try to make this thing and whatever. And oh, I'm really struck. Like all of these hangups that we have about things and we don't really think about their kind of divine provenance of what it is that we're doing, right? And how important that thing may be to something else happening, right? It's like you kind of tipping over the domino that's in front of you that God put there is really key for making, you know, 27 dominoes down fall over. If you don't tip yours, like that doesn't, you know, kind of continue. And right. it's easy to forget that, you know, it's easy to forget yep. that, that whole concept, at least I've found. Did, did I ever tell you, um, that I, 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 maybe not this year, but next year, I want to, I want to start this thing to push for the, um, the, uh, the canonization of this, uh, well, he's, he's a servant of God right now. I'd like to get involved. Uh, a patron saint of entrepreneurs. Have I ever told you about Father Jose Maria Ares Mendrieta? No, I don't think so. Man, I think this he sounds, is such he a, sounds Basque, so I'm already in. Yes, he's Basque. I'm in, because so am I. Oh, are you Basque? Oh, man, Basque yeah. are the, the coolest Spanish. They're, they're tough as nails, these guys. And, uh, and, they're, and they're stubborn, <laughs> but yeah. in, the best, in the best sense of the term. And um, so, so uh, there's a bakery in San Francisco. Uh, there's actually a chain of bakeries called Arizmendi's. And these are like, uh, with all due respect to them, they're, they're, they're all kind of hippies. They're work, it's a worker-owned cooperative bakery. And, and they make uh, they make really delicious bread. They have a sister co-op called the Cheese Board, and that's in Berkeley. Mm. And it's it's a company. These are companies that are owned entirely by the bakers, by the workers, and they democratically elect their own management. It's 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 a bit left wing. Um, sure, but, you know that's that's kind of people. But you go to any of these Arizmendi's bakeries, and they have a big poster of a priest on the wall, and mm. that's Father Jose Maria Arizmendrieta. And what happened? His story, and it, it's not that long, but um, he, um, after the Spanish Civil War, you know, the Basque country was just ruined. It was destroyed, as was a lot of Spain, obviously. But but the Basque country was was hurt um, quite a bit. They had a big problem with inflation and unemployment, and there were people starving in the streets. And um, this priest, Father Jose Maria Mendrieta, decided that you know, or he prayed. He's like, "What am I going to do to respond to this?" So he organized. Um, a bunch of guys to uh, to implement rerum novarum this this um, this encyclical by uh, Pope Leo the Thirteenth about um, well about economics really and um, and and the and the, the relation between labor and capital 
And he, um, and he got them together and he, and he started a, a cooperative that made kerosene lamps. Hmm. And he said, here's, here's our goal. Our, our goal is the, the dignity of the human person is, is to promote that within our work. So, um, so they, to, to this day, as you know, many years, 80 years later, whatever it was, um, they're, uh, uh, the, the co-op is called Mondragon, which is the, mm-hmm. the, the, the town in Spain where they, in Basque country where they're headquartered. Mondragon, they make electric car carts. They make uh, high-end kitchen appliances. They make, um, they, 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 they're into heavy industrial, light industrial, agriculture, consulting. They've got, I think it's the fourth biggest company in Spain to this day. And it's, and it's, it's owned by the workers. It's Catholic mm. social teaching. I've heard of this. At work. I've heard yeah. of it. I was going to say that the examples of that kind of uh, successful collaborative success by economic terms, so let me qualify it, are not many. In other words, there's not a lot of these things that are bigger than like a local bakery or whatever it may be. But that example, I didn't know the name, but has been brought up to me a number of times as a, you know, both um, you could say spiritually or religiously successful in the sense that it's advancing a principle of Catholic social teaching, but also economically successful, right? Like the example, like this can work. We just haven't done it the right way. Right. And that's been brought to my attention. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I'm not familiar with, with, uh, that servant of God, but I'm going to look him up we'll add him to the show notes too. So people can check it out. Reminds me of, uh, a little bit about Dorothy Day, just the way you described it. Right. Cause Dorothy Day mm. was also, gets a lot, you know, definitely left for sure. I mean, she was a communist, you know, um, and uh, formerly before she became Catholic, obviously. Right. But, um, but she had that sort of charism, that spirit of like, you know, workers collaboratives and like the workers electing their own leadership and, and yada, yada. And, you know, we don't bat an eyelash when we think about it in a, in a church circle. It's like, well, you know, the, if you want to become a Monsignor, let's say, um, it's because other priests in the diocese have put your name up for election with the, with the bishop. The bishop sends your name to Rome and the Pope goes, okay, fine, you can be a chaplain of his holiness, which is what a Monsignor is. Or even bishops, you know, bishops are basically, there's a pool of names and the bishop looks at them and then sends them to the nuncio or to Rome or whatever, and they're elected. But, we, but when we think about like leadership in the secular world, it's all based on economic factors, achievement, reputation, connection, like all that kind of stuff. So we kind of look at it a little bit askance, right, of, about this not being okay. But that's where this sort of left-right dynamic and, you know, business versus non-business dynamic, like it has a point where it doesn't apply. Like when you're, right. when you're, when you're really thinking about things in, in kind of the gospel mind, you know, we got to be a little bit, we have to take from, from all these things if yeah. we're really truly living a Catholic life. It's one of the incredibly liberating things about being Catholic is that we, we're, you know, what was what it? Uh, Pope Benedict said um, that, that the church is not an ideology. It's the anti-ideology. It's like, yeah. we don't, we don't have to be confined by left and right. We can take the best of everything and just stay united with Christ. You know, it's, it's so liberating. Pope Francis said it even more recently, a few weeks, a month ago, maybe he said that, um, that the gospel is not an idea, is not an idea, right? It's not, it's, it's, it's at its essence, it's non-ideological because it's not an idea, right? It's a, it's it's a a relationship. It's a person. (laughs) Exactly. So it's kind of hard to quantify, to put it in those, uh, in those terms. Right, right. Oh, amen, brother. Amen. (laughs) So Martin, the other thing that I have to confess is we're an hour in here is that, um, Normally, I wrap the show with a series of questions, wait, what, which I did not have a chance to compose this time. I'm, so, I'm relieved. Um, you're, <laughs> I, yeah, I figured, I figured you might be. I figured you might be. But I'm going to have to bring you back to actually play that game because that game is a lot of fun, but I just didn't have, uh, didn't have any time to do that. But I, but I would like to close with two things. One is, um, you know, from you, give us a sense. I know you said to me, actually, you wrote to me, and you said that you were— kind of in the world looking for opportunities that you could contribute to initiatives that improve the world by taking ideas and bringing them to life, which is itself like such a worthy thing to be a, mm. a creator, to give genesis to things, to give life to, to initiatives. But so the two things are one, like as you've been down there, what are you, what can you share with people that you're excited about the prospects of bringing to life 
Like, what are you going to be up to or what are you thinking that you might be up to in that kind of general sense? That's one. And the second thing is maybe what the audience can pray for, right? And for you, for the people in your community in Mexico, that kind of thing. Like, maybe let's let's kind of use that as a replacement for, wait, what? Holy cannoli. Okay, that's a lot of really, uh, those are great questions to answer. Okay. Uh, uh, the, the, the first one is, here, here's a, my next project. I'm always working on a project, of course. Um, um, my next project is I'm, I'm working on, so I started this community called Harbor. It's a, basically we took this convent um, owned by the diocese and, uh, and we started an intentional community of young men who pray together and uh, dine together. And, um, and they invite people over for hospitality all the time. It's like um, almost like a Catholic um, it's like a, a, similar to House of Hospitality, uh, you know, because you mentioned Dorothy Day in, in many ways. Uh, but most of but these guys all have they all have jobs. They live together and they and they and they sometimes work together. There's a little worker co-op room in there, too. Um, there's a, a house down in San Diego, too. Um, uh, our, our, can, we have two houses now. Um, what I want to do, my 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 next project is I want to get these, all these houses that it's not just the one I started and the one down in San Diego that my friend Nathan started. Um, there, there are houses like this all over the United States. And I, I would like to get them all, um, gathered together onto one website so that people mm. can get connected to these easily and quickly. So mm. whenever you're, if you're going to be living in San Francisco or New York or, you know, in Omaha, Nebraska, it doesn't matter wherever you are. I want, I want to make sure that people can find these communities. These communities are so spiritually powerful. Um, uh, you know, I, I have, I have benefited so much from these guys, uh, just living with them in the, I lived, the, I lived at the community for two years. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's just, and these, these guys just continue to amaze me. They, they, these guys put together once a month, a big barbecue, uh, for the parish and, uh, and it's not like a barbecue with like burgers and hot dogs. I and mean, that's kind of cute. No, these, these guys will like roast a whole pig, you know, and, uh, in a cajachina or something like that, you know, yeah. these guys, these guys just blow me out of the water with their cooking skills and, and that's their act of hospitality. And, um, oh man, it's, it's so much easier to talk to people if you're not just kind of trying to get them to take literature or something like that. So it's like, no, we just want you to eat with us. That's it. You don't have to talk about religion if you don't want to just sit down and enjoy our menudo or whatever we're making. Um, so that, that's, um, that's a pretty worthy, uh, undertaking to try to build the connective tissue between all of these, um, you know, in effect kind of lay religious houses, right? It's, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's, um, there's so much of benefit that can be brought about by that connectivity just in general for, you know, for anything churchy is connectivity is something we take for granted and don't necessarily do a good job of, um, and so, no, that's, that's big. Awesome. Okay, good. That's one. Yeah. What's two? Well, uh, so just one, just one project, but the second one was your second question, stuff to pray yeah. for. <laughs> yeah. So please, for sure. please, please pray for this project. Um, I don't, I, it's, I don't even have a name for it yet, but a project X, right? Something like that. Nice. Uh, project cross. How about that? There um, you go. Just flip the X over slightly more <laughs> to this. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, but yeah, also, um, you know, I, I have, um, I also want to ask for, uh, I, I recently got a, a tattoo uh, okay. from a friend of mine, a new friend of mine that I made down here. He's a, he's a, an ex priest and he's a good guy. Um, and which is why he understood the terminology of this uh, beautiful Guadalupe mm -hmm. tattoo that I have. Uh, but yeah, pray, please pray for him. And I, I, I pray that he will know the friendship of Jesus again. Um, Amen. Is, is, is the tattoo of our lady of Guadalupe? It, it sure is. <laughs> okay. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I miss that. No, that's awesome. I'll, if you're going to get show, one, that's I'll a good one. I'll show it one. to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Is it somewhere what, you, big, it? you can show? Yeah, of course. Yeah, look at that. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. Beginning of a sleeve there. Then you got to like, you know, uh, <laughs> is that your first one? It's my second one. It's my second, second one. I, I got my first one like 10 years ago, but uh, this is, I love this one way more than the first one. <laughs> I don't have any, and I'm pretty convinced that I'm too old to get start getting start getting tattoos. But I have some great ideas for them if I did. <laughs> you know what I mean? One sure. one of them for me is the Cairo, which I've always loved. This is like this super oh, yeah. ancient ancient Christological symbol. And the reason I like it as much as I do is because it's actually not well known 
in the secular world. If somebody sees, a, you know, you've got a crucifix or a cross on your body, they're going to assume you're Christian. But seeing a Cairo invites the question, what is that? And so it gives me a chance to talk to people. So that's one right. that I would do. And the second one is I have a buddy who's been on this show, uh, Dr. Anthony Santella. He's brilliant. Uh, he's a uh, computer scientist and a uh, he works at Sloan Kettering in New York. He's a cancer researcher. The guy's like a genius. But the thing that makes him most interesting is not his medical accomplishments or research accomplishments. It's the fact that he's a literally world-class artist and a sculptor, by the way, not just a painter, but a sculptor. And wow. he made this like 12 foot tall uh, rendition of the cherubim in the book of Daniel out of wood. Whoa. Whoa. And, um, yeah. The, the, the piece is called, Oh my gosh, what is it called? It's called something cl clarity. Um, oh, I'm going to forget what it is, but anyway, Look him up if you, we'll add him to the show notes too, Dr. Anthony Santella. But this thing is, I mean, it's when I think of an angel, knowing what I know of scripture and, and, and angelology, it's as close to what I think an angel would look like, even though I don't look like anything, but it's, but it's because it's ominous. I mean, this thing is uh, like, it looks like an Apache helicopter, right? I mean, it's not like a little, you know, little wings on a little fat baby. It's like this Does it have monster. many eyes? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, what is it called? I'm blowing it right now, but uh, we'll we'll figure it out and put it into the show notes. But anyway, so that that'd be another one that I get probably on my on my back. You know what I mean? And when anybody got scared or or, or got in my way, I just like take the shirt off and scare them off with that thing. That's uh, that's pretty pretty crazy. Well, awesome, right dude. Those are and, and oh, by the way, any any way that people can follow you or like go to your site or something like that. Uh, well, I mean, I, I do have a website, it's martinford.com. Um, and, uh, you can email me there if, if you have any cool ideas you want to share with me. Sure. Cool. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Well, I encourage everybody to get more acquainted with you, um, and find out ways that, you know, maybe they might play a role in, in, uh, in your future and vice versa. Cause that's what this thing's all about. And I really appreciate you being a part of the show. Really do. And, uh, and visiting with me for a little bit. Oh, it's an honor is mine. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Awesome. All right. Well, if you listen into our voices, that means that it's time to follow this show, to subscribe, to share this episode with somebody else who can be edified, who can be built up, who can be inspired by the little conversation that we had today. And please pray for the intentions that Martin uh, shared with us, um, both for his own work, as well as for uh, his priest friend, ex-priest friend, um, and for all of his endeavors and the things that the Lord is opening up for him in his life. And we'll see you again next time on Living the Call. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.